Today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show, we're going to talk about the 13th Age Bundle of Holding. By the gods, please help me. I'm going to talk about the OGL 1.1 and offer some perspective and some feelings on it. But we're also going to learn about how to skip topics in the podcast and in the video in case you are not interested in that topic. I'm going to do a product spotlight for Alternative Objectives for 5e, a book that came out a couple of years ago, but I think is really valuable. And it is the last show of 2022, and I want to give my favorite product that I have reviewed over, or that I have, upon which I have done a spotlight over 2022. I have one picked out. I don't think anybody knows what it is yet, so I'm going to talk about that. And we're going to cover some of the Patreon questions from December 2022 today on the Lazy DD Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive adventures, the City of Arches sourcebook, product previews, video previews, the monthly Q&A, the dedicated Discord channel, but most of all, they help me put on shows like this. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your outstanding support. I wanted to start off today by looking at a bundle of holding. So the bundle of holding is a fantastic way to get a huge pile of products for a, re- for a very low price. And one of the, I, I have spotlighted various bundles of holding in the past, but a current bundle of holding caught my attention. And when these pop up, they're almost always worth grabbing if you're interested at all. And today it is the 13th Age Mega Bundle. There are two different collections you can pick up. The Starter Collection, which has sort of all of the core books, and the Bonus Collection, which includes a whole bunch of adventures and a whole bunch of supplements dedicated for 13th Age. The Starter Collection starts at $25, so slightly more than the cost of a single PDF. And you get the 13th Age Core book 13 true ways which is sort of an expansion of new classes and subclass options and things not really subclass options but new class options that you can pick up two different 13th age bestiaries the bestiary one the bestiary two book of loot book of magic item loot hoarder loot harder even more loot book of ages crown of access i am not familiar with those with those books and the 13th age gm screen i love 13th age 13th age is a a and d clone that came out after fourth edition around the time of fifth edition so i think slightly before fifth edition came out it was during the playtest of fifth edition it is a high power fantasy rpg so if you really liked fourth edition of DD. i really love 13th age 13th age was to me the evolution of fourth edition that i really loved it taught me a lot of things about DD games it taught me about static monster damage it taught me about abstract combat distances for theater of the mind combat it taught me about having flexible backgrounds and using backgrounds as a way to draw proficiencies really interesting things that the 13th age escalation die the idea that you can a battle can get faster and faster paced by using this thing called an escalation die. The authors of 13th Age, Rob Hanso and Jonathan Tweet, treated it as, they, they referred to it as their love letter to D&D. And they took essentially what were many different house rules and other ideas and wrapped them into this game with the intent that not only is it a standalone game that you can play on its own, and the first, the 13th Age core book by itself has everything you need to play the game, including monsters, an adventure, character options. It's got everything piled up into this one book. And you can pluck out a lot of pieces of it and drop it into your other D20-based games. They intended for many of the rules that are in there to be transportable and modular enough that you can pull them out of 13th Age and drop them in. The Escalation Die is an example. The Escalation Die is a D6 that you put on your table. You often want to get the biggest D6 that you can get. And you set it on your table. And every round of combat, the pip goes up. So 
Round one, it's zero. Round two, it's one. Round three, it's two. And everybody gets the bonus to their attack bonus as the escalation die goes up, which means it gets easier and easier to hit stuff. You could apply it to monsters. I think at 13th age, it's not applied to monsters. You could also have it apply to special effects. A certain thing could occur when the pip hits three. Maybe the room explodes in fire or something like that. So the third, that, that idea of the escalation dice is a really interesting, fun mechanic. It's part of the core of 13th age. The other interesting mechanic is this idea of icons. Icons are like powerful entities in your world that aren't exactly gods, but can drive the current situation and can be used as an improvisational guide. I really think that's an interesting idea. It was kind of hard to implement. There were some tricky bits with it, but it's a really cool idea. So all of that is in the 13th Age books. This, if you if you are interested at all in 13th Age, the starter collection is a very good deal. If you are planning on running it, if you're planning on actually using this in your in your in your for your games, I would consider picking up the whole bundle. The starter collection is $25. The full bundle is 42 bucks, I think. $42. Yeah, $41.50. You'll get level up, you get the bonus collection. So if you're really into it, you can drop 42 bucks. You're gonna get a whole pile of material. It's beautiful stuff. Well designed, beautiful layout, really, really good looking stuff. And you can get all that for for 42 bucks. Or if you just want to kind of dive into the core book and see what's going on, you get the core book plus many other books. You can get that for the for 25 bucks. So really good deal. Check it out. It's in the show notes below. 17 days left. So a nice, nice long time to pick up this bundle. But pick it up while you're thinking about it. It's a really, really good bundle. I like it very much. Boy, I have vacillated on whether or not to talk about the OGL, the open gaming license, and the stuff that's been going on with the open gaming license. But I cannot help myself but do so now. However, I want to offer you a quick tutorial on something that I think could be very valuable to you. If you are watching this video on YouTube, I bookmark every chapter, every different topic that I talk about into a separate bookmark. So you can skip any topic that I talk about that you're not interested in. If you are tired of hearing about the OGL, and I truly sympathize with you, go ahead and click that button, jump to the next session. We're going to be talking about alternative objectives. I will not be sad in the least. If you are listening on a podcast, if you're, if you're listening to the podcast of this, the, I do the same thing. I put chapter marks both in the description of the podcast and as bookmarks in the podcast file itself. Good podcatchers, whatever application you're, you're using to listen to your podcast, good ones have a way to skip to the next chapter. Likewise, you can hit skip and jump to the next jump to the next part. I also have it in the topics and their bookmarks. So often you can go in and you can see the timestamps and you can see the timestamp of the next one I'm doing. You can click on that. The podcaster I use is Overcast. Overcast has both of these implemented. So you can do that. I'm telling you that because a topic like this is one that can be for a specific set of people that are very interested in it. Many, many people probably have no interest in it at all. This past week on Wednesday, Wizards of the Coast put out a statement on OGL's SRD and 1D&D. I am not going to read through it, but I want to highlight a few specific things. Many of us who publish for D&D and many people who are interested in those people who publish for D&D were interested to hear what Wizards of the Coast was going to do with regards to the open gaming license, the OGL, a system resource document for one D&D if they were going to make one or not, or any other kind of license thing that, that we were going to do. Because this is a very evolving topic, because this is something that is changing a lot, I wrote up a blog article, not for Sly Flourish, but for my personal blog, called My Thoughts on the OGL 1.1. I've, I've been writing and revising this over the past few days. I am linking it to in the show notes below. And because videos tend to be kind of static, you generally don't go back and re-edit a video to fix things. And because this is an evolving topic, if you want to know what my current feelings are on this. If you want to know, given things that might be changing in the future, if you're watching or listening to this in the future and there have been further announcements, because this is a 
evolving topic and you want to know what I think, check the link in the show notes below for my thoughts on the D&D OGL 1.1. If you want like the Mike Shea official opinion on all of this, that article is the Mike Shea official opinion. The video that you're watching or the podcast that you're listening to right now is only my opinion as of right now. And that can change because the circumstance can change. So keep that in mind. Check out, check out that article if you want to, if you want to see it. One of the things about that article is I actually ran it by a bunch of different designers. I ran it by folks in my in my Discord server. I wanted to get conflicting opinions on this. I, I said, like, where am I wrong? Please tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me where I'm misrepresenting something. Tell me where I am not paying attention to something. Yeah, and there's some, there are definitely things I'm not paying attention to. A lot of people are interested in like how this deals with VTTs. I'm not going to talk about how it deals with VTTs because I don't run a VTT. That's not really my, I don't, I don't really use VTTs very much. The VTT I do use, I don't worry about it. It's not going to be a problem. So I'm not worried about the electronic side of it. I'm working, worried about the publishing side of it. And so that is definitely a topic. But I, I have run this by a lot of people. So I'm, I am interested in opinion. If you have contrary uh, opinions on this that you think are valid after having read this let me know you know nicely don't yell at me you know but in comments wherever you happen to be send me an email send me a comment whatever if you think i am misrepresenting something first check to make sure i actually am because i've done a lot of research on this so check to make sure i am and if i have if you said no there is this thing that that stands out there and you're wrong about this please let me know because i want to be i want to have a good view of this i i'm and i'm totally willing to admit being wrong i am not i don't hang on to this so much that i'm not willing to be wrong test and disprove my hypothesis i have tried to test and disprove my hypothesis so wizards of the coast made this announcement and i fully expected that wizards of the coast was going to do something along the lines of the fourth edition game system license back in fourth edition times wizards of the coast put out a different license that was much more limited and i expected they might do something like that and the reality is that's exactly what they did the part that really chaps my ass is they're pretending it's the OGL. It's not. The thing they're talking about, the thing that they describe in this article is not the OGL. It is a totally different license that operates completely differently. As far as we can tell, the license isn't out yet, so we don't know exactly what it says. But just based on what they're describing, just what they say they're going to do with it, it's already not an open license. It's a closed license. It's a license that gives Wizards of the Coast control over your work. That's the issue. Here's a couple of things that really bug me about it, right? We love in the interest of passion the D&D community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We love D&D. Yeah, yeah, we know you do. So when we see the D&D community concerned by rumors and misunderstandings, we want to clear the air and share the facts. The accentuation is my own addition. That's not, I don't know if that's how they said it, but that's how I'm reading it. Clear the air and share the facts with you. Even if it's a bit earlier than our original plan, you mattered us and we want to provide transparency on how D&D will continue to support third-party publishers. All right. Okay. So here are the facts, right? Will one D&D included SRT to be covered by an OGL? Yes. I read that and my first reaction was, yay, they're putting out an, they're putting out an SRD. This is great. And I, I was on a Discord server where we talk about all this and I said, they did it. I'm surprised they're going to do it. They're going to put it out in the OGL. And then I got to two and I was like, oh, what? Because it's not the OGL, it's an OGL. What do you mean an OGL? There is only the OGL. There is a 1.0 and a 1.0A and they are almost identical. In fact, nobody I could talk to could figure out what the differences are between the two licenses. People said they ran like a, like a grep to compare the two and couldn't find a difference between the two. So nobody knows what the difference is between the 1.0 and 1.0A. But they've both been around. The 1.0 has been around for more than 20 years. 
It's 20 years old. So it's not like they talk about this. Oh, it's an evolving thing. No, it's not. You're making it an evolving thing. It hasn't evolved. It's the same license. Yeah. It will. Then one day include an OGL. Yes. No. The answer is no. The answer is we're going to make a new one with a new license and we're going to call it the OGL. That's, you know, when they say they want to be transparent, that's not transparent. This is misrepresentation. The number one thing I would like you to understand watching this video or listening to this podcast, if you're concerned about this topic, the one thing I think is important to understand is the thing that they are describing in this article is not the OGL. It is not an open gaming license. It is a restricted license. It is different. And why I think that's important is because I immediately saw Reddit threads. I immediately saw posts on NWorld. I saw posts otherwhere where everybody said, see, all the naysayers were wrong. They're going to release it. It's going to be fine. And all they picked on was, oh, well, they're only making rich people have to pay a license fee. They're only making, you know, it's to get rid of the NFTs, right? That we don't like NFTs. That's and what they're not, what they're missing is this is a restricted license. This is a limited license. As, as described, right? Again, we don't have the thing in front of us, but as described, it's a limited license. It's not an open gaming license. It does not conform to the original ideas, which are articulated by employees of Wizards of the Coast back when the OGL came out. They wrote a fact. You can find the fact linked in the show notes below that describes the fact that they don't want wizards to have control over your work. And obviously the philosophy has changed. And I'm cool with the fact that the philosophy has changed because it's vacillated back and forth, right? When D&D first came out back in the 80s, they were, TSR was known as like they sue regularly, right? Was the acronym for TSR because they were suing everybody who would try to make anything that was compatible with D&D back in the 80s. And I don't know if so much in the 90s. I don't know about second edition. And then third edition came out and they said, no, we want to focus on the core books and we want everybody else to make all those little supplements. So we're going to create the OGL. And they did. And they wrote facts about it. And they made sure it was clear that the Wizards of the Coast protects their IP, like the name D&D, like certain monsters, like, like all of their other IP. But the rules, the monster stat blocks, spell descriptions, all that stuff, that is usable. And it's usable by you and you don't need our permission. And we can't revoke the license. We can never pull it back. We've designed the license to be a perpetual, non-exclusive license over which nobody has control. Wizards cannot change it. They cannot, it's written in there by design. They cannot change the OGL. They can make a new one, which is what they're doing. They cannot go back and fix the old one, fix the old one. They can't go back, right? Third edition was very open. Third edition, they, they created the, the OGL. They created the third edition SRD. They put all of that out there. Fourth edition, they were closed again. They went back to kind of the way of the 80s. We're going to put out the GSL. GSL's game system license. It was very limited. And it had things like reporting requirements to Wizards of the Coast. You had to let them know when you were making a new product. Wizards of the Coast had the right to refuse the product at any time, which means they could pull the license back after you had published it. They also had the right to change the license whenever they wanted, which meant you were applying a license to a fixed product where the license could become invalid or change after you'd already written a product, which meant that that product is essentially under the control of Wizards of the Coast. Does this sound kind of familiar? If you are going to enforce reporting requirements on companies, which this one says they're going to do, if you're going to do all these other things, like you have to let us know when you're, what product you're making, if you're going to put that in the contract, that's exactly what the GSL did. What they're talking about here is a new GSL. As far as I can read, as far as I understand, it's going to be a new GSL. Wizards of the Coast is going to have control over your product. And that's, that's the difference between this license that they seem to be describing here and the OGL. As far as I can read, as far as I know, talking to my friends, talking to lots of people who are interested in this, hearing lawyers talk about what the OGL means. 
hearing lawyers talk about what the GSL means. This is what these discussions have done. This is not providing transparency. This is not quelling rumors and misunderstandings. This is creating all new ones that some of which are in their favor. If that was the goal, if the goal was we want to get most people to quit whining about the OGL and have only this small group of people complain about it that people are tired of hearing from, they might be accomplishing their goal. And that's what bugs me because this doesn't matter to just publishers. It doesn't matter only to people making $750,000 a year. It matters to all of us because we use these products in our game. I'm running two Kobold Press adventures for my games right now that are both under the original OGL, the OGL 1.0. I am running source material, character option stuff, monster books, all kinds of things that I'm using are OGL. That's what really bugs me about this license. And the answer is we'll, we'll see. We'll, we're going to see we're going to see what they're going to do. We'll have to see when the actual license come out, comes out. But one thing I don't mind, I don't mind people getting mad about this on, on Twitter or on YouTube or anything like that. And I don't mind people holding Wizards of Coast accountable for the things that they're talking about, particularly when instead of just growing up and saying, we're putting out a new GSL, instead of just, you know, coming forth, being Trans, truly transparent and saying we're going to be putting out a more limited license we're not going to be putting out an OGL we're going to be putting out a new limited license instead of doing that they're like oh it is an OGL kind of but kind of not right and I think their intent is to drive a wedge in the community and basically have a bunch of people say see they're being fine only you rich people have to worry we all hate NFTs look at this how disingenuous is it for them to bring up the fact like well obviously we need to do this to prevent NFTs really Come on, right? And oh, you know, exploiting our intellectual property. Big, large businesses exploiting our intellectual property. Large businesses, you're the one that's trying to build a $4 billion company. Large businesses. Who do you think you are? <laughs> you're a publicly traded company. How many other publicly traded companies are making D&D things? Not many. That are using the OGL. Not many, right? Give me a break. So they're trying to steer people away from the conversation. So this is a, I feel that this is a very disingenuous misrepresentation of what the OGL is. And that is what really, that's what really bothers me about it. That's why I get bugged. And I get bugged. I'm really bugged because it seems to be working. It seems, I'm watching videos from people I really respect, people who I really enjoy, who are like, yeah, see, this is all fine. It's only rich people that are going to have to worry about it. I don't make $50,000 on a product and I don't make $750,000 doing D&D stuff. Sure, I have to send them a postcard or fill out a form. So what? Now your product is limited, maybe, and we won't know until the license comes out exactly what it's going to say, but it sure seems like you're going to give Wizards of the Coast control over your product. They can change the license whenever they want. They can revoke the license. Here's a really interesting thing. The GSL, which required reporting, the GSL had a bunch of requirements in it. One of the things was you had to, re you had to tell them when you were making a new product. You had to send them a postcard or something that said, here's the kind of product I'm going to make. Here's what it's about and let them know and register the product with Wizards of the Coast. The other thing you had to do was regularly go back and look at the license on the Wizards of the Coast website to make sure that if it changed, that you still conformed with it. Guess what you can't find on the Wizards of the Coast website anymore? The GSL at all. You have to go to the Internet Archive. I have a link to it. You can go find it in the show notes. You have to go get a link to it. But they basically just stopped publishing it. Well, what, is, what happens when the company that says in their own legal document says you have to stay up to date and you have to stay up to date over on this website and the website's not even working anymore? What happens? I don't even know. I don't, you know. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. Does that void the contract? I have no idea what happens. Does it mean you're cool and you can publish anything you want? I doubt it. Right? So if Wizards of the Coast is applying control over your product, that's an issue. 
And they're not going to say that in this nice fuzzy thing where they're just, oh, everything's fine here. Everything's cool. But boy, when the license comes out, we're going to find out. So when the actual OGL 1.1 comes out, they say it's going to come out in early 2023 and we can take a look at it then. And here are the things that I am specifically going to be watching out for when I look for that contract. One is, is it revocable by Wizards of the Coast? Can Wizards of the Coast pull back the license? I.e., if I register a product with them, can they then say later, we don't want you to publish that product anymore? I'm almost certain that they're going to put something like that in there. And there are probably good reasons to put that in there. If you're publishing really problematic stuff, stuff that's really like terrible material, Wizards would certainly want the ability to yank that and say, no, you cannot publish your nasty ass product using our stuff anymore. That's what they did in the GSL too. I'm not going to argue whether that's good or bad because there are reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. But that's not the way the OGL works. The OGL, they cannot pull it back. It cannot be revoked. Can Wizards of the Coast change the terms of the contract after it's been out? This was that GSL thing. Can I, are you going to make me agree to a, GS, uh, to a new license agreement and, and, uh, and agree to uh, adhere to your changes to that when I don't know what they are. That's a real problem. Again, the GSL did that, and that was enough that almost hardly any publishers used the GSL because they had these limitations on it. And I would be, not be surprised if I do it again. Does the OGL 1.1, this is a real interesting one, lots of debate about this, lots of talk about this, and particularly section nine of the original OGL, which described that you can use any version of the OGL whichever version you want with any material released under any of the OGLs. It's really weird if you're, you know, lawyers have to get into this, but essentially what it means is they can put out new copies of the open gaming license. They can put out new versions. Section nine specifically talks about this. They can put out new versions of the OGL and you don't have to publish under any one of them. You can pick whichever one you want to publish from. I, I, we don't know how the hell that will work with 1.1 because 1.1 is clearly more restrictive. If it's a more restrictive license, they're probably going to try to force you to use 1.1. How are they going to force you to use 1.1? We don't know. Does the OGL 1.1 limit a publisher's ability to use the older OGL 1.0a? In other words, if I sign on to use OGL 1.1 for something, does that preclude me from using the old license for either that work or other work? The idea is you are, you are putting something in there that then cuts me off from other options I already had. That's a big one. So these are the specific things I'm going to be looking for in this new license. And honestly, for the first two, I, ex I absolutely expect they're going to be there. I absolutely expect that they're going to be, their license is going to be revocable by, by Wizards of the Coast and that they'll, they'll give themselves the right to change the terms of the license after you've agreed to it. And those are killers. You cannot, how do you publish a physical product and make 10,000 copies of it only to know that Wizards could change the license on you and now it's invalid and you got to pulp them all and make new ones. That's a problem, and it's a, it's a big enough problem that, that publishers will probably stay away from it. So those are the things I'm really looking out for. Now, there's another interesting question, and I've seen, I was watching a video actually this morning about this, and I've seen lots of people talk about this, which is, do you even need to use the OGL at all? And, the, and a lot of people are like, well, yeah, you know, if you're going to publish something that's compatible with D&D, you definitely need to be using the OGL because that's what determines that what you can use for compatibility. Not according to trademark, copyright, and patent law. So when we talk about intellectual property rights here in the United States, we're talking about basically three big areas of law. We're talking about copyright law, patent law, and trademark law. You can't use terms that are trademarked by another company. You can't use a copywritten work, which has its all fuzzy things about there are times you can use it and all sorts of other things. And patent law doesn't really apply to this at all. So the question is like, really, when do you need to use an OGL? When do you really need to use it? 
And I argue, and I'm not a lawyer, but I can tell you what my philosophy has been. If I'm copying text out of a system resource document or out of what they refer to as open gaming material, which is the material that is defined by an OGL, if I'm copying big chunks of text out of one of those sources and putting it into my product, then I feel like I should be using the OGL. There's issues because like how much text can you copy before you're committing a copyright violation is a big lawyerly question. But certainly if they said, hey, this material is available under this license, you can copy it and go. What you don't need to use the OGL for is anytime you're creating original content that's compatible with the current game. You're allowed to use terms. You're allowed to use things like inspiration. Some say, oh, you can't use inspiration if you don't have the, the term inspiration is not trademarked. It is not, and a single word can't be copywritten. So you can describe things like inspiration. As far as I know, as far as I can guess, argue, tell me if, lawyers, tell me if I'm wrong. That's, if you are truly an expert in this opinion, please let me know. As far as I know, you cannot trademark small phrases. You cannot, you cannot trademark something like inspiration. You cannot trademark something like D20 check. You cannot trademark that stuff. It's too small. It's too fuzzy. It's not, it's not something that you can apply a trademark to. So you're not really violating a trademark for putting in small terms like that. Any original content, you're making a new monster, you're making new magic items, you're making new spells, you're making new subclasses, you're making new settings, adventure material, world books, campaign books, anything that you are creating yourself, even if it's compatible, I don't know that you need, I'm going to, I'm going to be fuzzy. I don't know that you need to use the OGL at all. I think you could just publish it. And there are books out there. I'm not going to name names, but there are books out there that use a tremendous amount of material with no OGL. That's directly, obviously very by name connected to fifth edition of D&D. Random tables and inspirational material. You don't have to, many of the stuff that Raging Swan puts out, for example, which I've reviewed on the show, you don't need to do it for that. So there's lots of stuff there. Original maps and artwork. If it's yours, if you commissioned it and licensed it yourself or you made it yourself, that's not under the OGL. You don't, you don't owe a license. You don't have to sign a license with Wizards, of, with Wizards of the Coast to publish that stuff. You can just do it. I would argue like you look at Cobalt Press's Toma Beast 3. In Toma Beast 3, there are no monsters that they've directly copied out of the 5th edition system resource document. The document that is under the license of, under the OGL 10A that they use in that book. I think they just did it out of habit. I think that Cobalt Press says, well, we make all of our stuff OGL compatible. It also makes their stuff future compatible with other groups. Right? They, get to, they get to say the, the monsters that we're putting in this book are also available to other publishers to use. So that's nice. That's good of them. But they, I don't think they needed to. I think they could have not put an SRD or, or an OGL in there at all because it's all original monsters. Right? You can't use trademarks anyway. And so they can't say this is compatible with D&D. They have to say this is compatible with the fifth edition of the world's most popular role-playing game. They could say that. And you could say that anyway. You don't need the license to say it. The license doesn't say you can say that. I think that you can say a whole, a whole lot of stuff. I think that you could publish a whole lot of material without using the OGL at all. We'll see. So why does this matter to DMs? I, this show, as I often talk about, this show is here to serve dungeon masters, not publishers, right? You're, this is not a show to help people who are making products and selling them. This is a show to help dungeon masters run their game. You have heard me talk about the resilience of D&D, that D&D is a resilient hobby, it's a resilient product, it's a resilient game. And part of the reason it's resilient is that no one company can control the whole thing. Wizards of the Coast doesn't agree, and they're trying to get control of it again. They're trying to bring control back again. Their impression is D&D has gotten too big in too many people's control outside of ours, and we want to bring it back in. To me, the real value of D&D as a hobby 
more so than hobbies like World of Warcraft or Destiny 2, a game that I kind of enjoy when I'm not playing D&D, is that if Bungie wants to change Destiny 2, they just change it. And there's nothing the community can do about it. The only people who control the community are them. D&D isn't like that at all. We own the books. We have the physical books. We have physical products. We have third-party publishers making product. We saw it with Pathfinder, right? If there was a bunch of people who didn't like the direction 4th edition was going. They created Pathfinder. Some people like that. Some people don't. Doesn't matter that's resilience the fact that there was another group saying we're going to stay with the old 3.5 rules and keep going with that that brought resilience to the hobby whether whether you like that or not it brought resilience to the hobby and this is an attempt to remove that resilience this is an attempt to bring control back under one company and have that one company rule it if they limit the license or they use a propaganda campaign which i think is what they're doing if they do a propaganda campaign to try to get people to to only support D&D as, as it comes from Wizards of the Coast and ignore or pretend it doesn't exist or scare them into not publishing new material, that weakens the hobby for all of us as DMs and players. And that's why I think this is an important topic. That's why I think it was worth bringing on the show. Let's take a look at a product. Let's spotlight a product. This is a product, Alternative Objectives by Matthew Hansen. This is available on the, on the drive-thru RPG. You can find a link to this product in the show notes below. This product actually has been around for a couple of years. I went and looked. I was like, oh, this came back out in December 2020. So it's literally a couple of years old. I'm not even convinced I haven't talked about it on the show before. I think I might have. But I got a new review copy of it, and I, I, it has been on my desk. And I said, I want to take a look at this and see what it's got. Altern Advanced Encounters Alternative Objectives is a really good example of a small product that focuses on one specific aspect of our game. One aspect that we can take and bring ideas from, bring specific material from, and drop into our game. And that idea is how to offer alternative objectives than just full-on combat where one side is dead and the other side is victorious. If you look at a lot of D&D combat encounters, a lot of them are based on you defeat the enemy. That's the only objective. You defeat the enemy. And it can work for the most part, but it can be very interesting instead to have alternative objectives. What are other things that the characters need to accomplish in that combat encounter to succeed or fail? This product, a 30-page product, covers both the philosophy of how to create alternative objectives and specific examples that you can that you can drop into your game. Very well-designed product. Looks really good. Hey, look, released under the o OGL. Yeah. You can take a look at the table of contents here. All kinds of different things, different objective types, other considerations for creating objectives, like, like making those expectations clear. And then a whole pile, about half of the book is, is sample encounters. The book itself, the product itself is $6. $6 on drive through RPG just for the philosophy, just to read the philosophy and understand and bring it in. I think it's definitely worth, definitely worth six bucks. Nice introduction about why you want to have alternative objectives, what you want to do with them. Then objective types, good design, clear, easy to read, nice black and white line art. I really like the, I really like the art. Lots of, lots of talk about how this worked. Doomsday clocks. I love this idea of like the doomsday clock. We talked about the idea of like the tickers in Blades in the Dark. Powered by the Apocalypse has the Doomsday Clock idea. I think this is talking about the same thing, like what happens when a Doomsday Clock goes up to a high degree. Ways to keep the danger constant. So lots of good philosophy here about how to put in different objectives into your game. And can you hold a position? Can you breach a position? How do you fight an unending pile of, of hordes of monsters? What, you know, obtain, go, go acquire something. This is like the heist-based adventure. Now, some of these are like how to build it into an adventure. Some of them are how to build them into an encounter. But it's a really, really good angle. And this is, this is just a kind of product I really love. I love to see 
a particular slice, an opinionated article or an opinionated piece that talks about here's a different way to run this component of our game that you can just read and internalize. And then while you're thinking about your game, you can bring it into your game. Very, very powerful stuff. I really like it. And I, and I love that it both talks about high level stuff. What are the objectives that you can talk about and talks about, you know, again, what are the things that you want to, that you want to, what are the expectations you want to make clear, how to, you know, extending encounters, how to use ability checks, all the kind of stuff that you want on how you're, how you're running this thing. And then offers a bunch of sample encounters. It has different encounter difficulties, like what are the levels that an encounter is appropriate for what what works. <laughs> I love the art, right? Somebody's stealing a necklace from somebody that's got a bunch of guards. Really kind of cool. Includes monster stat blocks for things. So these are specific drop-in encounters that you can that you can that you can drop in. These are specific things that you can you can plop right out, plop right into your game. Caves of ice. Let's take a look at these. It's nice hand-drawn maps. Firefight, firebugs, the assassination. I wonder if you're doing the assassination or someone else is getting assassinated. Escape the city of brass. Definitely look at relatively high level, right? This is this is intended for levels like fourteen and above. How do you get out of this the city of brass? The fallen angel. Look at this twentieth level twentieth level encounter. So a good, definitely a good a good look at this topic with with both philosophy and examples. So this is the alternative objectives for 5e by Sneak Attack Press. You can find a link to it down in the show notes below. It is the last show of 2022, and I thought it would be fun to look back at all of the products that I have done spotlights of and kind of pick one out, highlight one. I don't want to say it's the best product. Is it the best one? It's the one that I have gone back to the most. It is the product that I really feel made a big difference in this hobby, something that I will directly use often and something that I really love and I think has really made this hobby better. And that product is, you can do your drum beat while I put off my shelf, that product is The Monstrous Menagerie by Level Up 5e, published by N-World Publishing, written by Paul Hughes. This is an outstanding book. You can buy both the PDF of this book and the physical hard copy of this book from the N-World website. There is a link down in the show notes below. I will also link to my spotlight where I talk about this. But why did I pick Level Up 5e's Monstrous Menagerie as my favorite my favorite product of 2022, the product that I, it actually came out in 2021. So it's not a 2022 product. It, it came out in November of 2021, but I spot, I did my spotlight of it this year and I've been mostly looking at it this year. And it has 600 fifth edition compatible monsters. It is a drop-in replacement for the monster manual. You can use this book instead of the monster manual. Paul Hughes, the author of the book, is wrote the blog of holding. You can find a link to the blog of holding as well has studied the math of monsters more than anybody I know. He really understands how these monsters work. And so he was hired by N-World Publishing to do the design of the monsters in the, the Monsters Menagerie, which means the stability of the monsters here, the scale, how they work. You're not going to find a lot of monsters that are doing a lot of really weird things in here that go well outside of their CR, either low or high. A lot of really cool design ideas. The idea of having like elite legendary monsters, really powerful versions of monsters is something that I I, I, I very much like the, you know, I mean, it's almost twice as many monsters that are in the monster manual. Really, really powerful book. I loved it. You can, you can pick up the PDF for 20 bucks. I would suggest getting the hard copy. The, the physical version, really well designed, beautiful quality book. It's got nice ribbons. If you have cats, the cats, you can see mine are all chewed because the cats got to them. You know, thread bound book, very strong. When we talk about the resilience of this hobby, 
this book can survive a nuclear attack. I mean, not directly, not a direct nuclear attack, but you know, if you're far enough away, it'll be okay. You could play some D and D or your hair's falling out. So really, really strong book. My favorite book of 2022 and relevant to our topic earlier, not to bring it up again, fully released under the OGL 10A, which means you can use the material from this book in your own products by following the license agreement that they have in here. The only ones that you can't are named monsters, but I think almost all of the 600 monsters that are in this book and the design behind them is available for use in other products, which is a tremendous thing. Something that, that Morris over at N world has done beautiful artwork. Check it out. That's my favorite product of 2022. The monstrous menagerie by level up five E written by Paul Hughes link to it in the show notes below. Congratulations, Paul. And congratulations to N world for making a really awesome product. I like it so much. I bought the other two books physically. I want, I want the full level up five E version of fifth edition. I, I want my own, my own physical copy of that book. Let's cover some Patreon questions. I'm probably going to do, I probably have two last sets of questions for 2022 from the December 2022 Patreon Q&A. Patrons of Sly Flourish, every month I post a comment saying any D&D related, any D&D or RPG related question you want me to answer, you can post to this thread. We do it every month. I answer every single question on the Patreon itself. I also, some of them I take and I bring to this show when I think that they have a good wide appeal. And they're hitting on a topic that I think is really good and interesting for the hobby. Fantastic questions. Many times I get many fantastic questions from this. Some of them I take and turn into larger articles and I turn into other, other videos that I shoot. So let's take a look at our questions that we have today. Axel C says, how do you connect published adventures? I have a problem with connecting short published adventures like the ones in Yawning Portal or in Cobalt Press's Tales from the Old Margrave. My main thing is the motivation for the players. Why should they go where the, where, where the next adventure starts? Do you have a favorite way of accomplishing that? Do you, or do you simply say you're traveling through these planes when all of a sudden X happens? Or do you play it out in the journey or do you have something completely different that I can't think of? How do you connect unconnected storylines? How do you motivate players to go there where the next adventure starts? Really good question. And the answer is lots of, there's lots of different things you can do. And we'll talk about, we'll talk about a few of these different things you can do. One thing you can do is you can read through the adventures you plan on integrating. Look for the hooks that connect those adventures, the, the hooks that would draw somebody to those adventures and drop those hooks in significantly earlier in the campaign. So instead of just having them suddenly find out about this old tomb, filled with horrors foreshadow it let them know that the tomb is there let them know that this thing give them that foreshadow that it's there and let them decide if they want to go towards it or not let them you know sink the hooks in early so that then when it becomes time for them to go there they've if it feels like they're right there that is a really good one another thing you can do is make them side quests you can make them you can disconnect them from the main storyline of whatever campaign you have going on and make them an optional side quest. An example of this, bringing up Tomb of Horrors, is when I ran Ghosts of Saltmarsh, I had an entryway to the Tomb of Horrors underneath an ancient wizard's tower that a vampire had taken over. The vampire was an ally of the characters. That's a long story. But the vampires had an ally. The, the characters had an ally who was a vampire. And the vampire was obsessed with the fact that there was this ancient tomb beneath the tower filled with wonders. And the character saw it and the player said, holy S, that's the tomb of horrors. <laughs> and they were like, do we go in there? And they're like, do we have to? And they all looked at me and I'm like, you know, and they're like, I don't want to go in there. And like, no, sir and ma'am, we do not want to go in there. And he's like, I'll find other adventures to go in for me. And they're like, okay. We're going to go take care of this other problem. So they saw that door to the Tomb of Horrors is there. And they're like, no, 
we're not going in. We're not going in. So you can make them optional. You can still like hint at it. I hinted about the fact that there's an old tomb beneath the tower and they were very interested in this old tomb beneath the tower until they found out it was the Tomb of Horrors and they're like, oh no, never mind. We're not interested anymore. So you can foreshadow, foreshadowing them and making them optional is, is two really good ways to do that. Making them sort of side quests is the other way. Tales of the Old Margrave in particular was tricky because it, they were like level appropriate adventures, but they were actually in physically different places. So the other thing you can do is of course, change the lore around of the adventures or change its description so to make it more closely tied with the campaign that's going on. This gets in that idea that adventures are really modular. You don't have to use the storyline that's in there. You might just grab the map and just use the map. You might use the map in a few of the encounters, but you can change the story completely and you can certainly change its location. So you could take a lot of the tomb, you could take a lot of the stuff from like Yawning Portal and move it to different places that are then in the way of the characters or that are near the characters enough that they're willing to go there instead of having to travel all over the place. So like Tales of the Old Margrave, many of the adventures in there are all over the Margrave, the forest of Margrave. And you, you might need to move them around. You might have to shift them over closer to the characters just so they can see them when they're wandering around. So that's probably my third, my third tip from that is take, feel free to, to take published adventures and make them modular. T take the pieces of them that work. Throw away the pieces that don't work. Change the storylines to suit the storyline that you've got. And that's another way to sort of integrate them together. So Axel, great question. I hope that, I hope that answered that answer to your question. The Virtual DM asks, so Fantastic Layers finally came up in my reading crew. Yay! Fantastic Layers is the book that I wrote with James Intercasso and Scott Gray. We put together a really fun book of 24 different small encounters that you could drop into your game with full maps and design, everything like that. There's a link to Fantastic Layers in the show notes below. Very proud of that book. And I'm really enjoying it. One of the things I'm particularly enjoying is looking at the suggestions for tuning the, di the dials and flipping the switches to tune encounter difficulty. I'm wondering two things. First, do you have a formula you use when tuning encounters in terms of the sequence of the changes you will make? For example, would you turn the dials on hit points and attack damage before you make a monster switch? Would you increase the number of monsters before switching to a higher challenge monster? Second, if you do, does the formula scale through the various tiers of play? Yes. Great question. Yes, Fantastic Layers talks about what I refer to as the dials of monster difficulty. I have an article on Sly Flourish also called the dials of monster difficulty. You can find a link to that in the show notes below. And I describe the monsters of di the dials of monster difficulty in the Lazy DMs Companion. This is a concept that I feel very strongly about. And that's the idea. The idea idea of the, monster, the dials of monster difficulty is that you can essentially change four things during an encounter, either before an encounter or during an encounter, to change the difficulty of a game. One, the number of monsters. How many of them are there? Two, the hit points of those monsters. Do they go up or down? Should they stay around longer? Or they should, should they they die faster? Change the hit point dial. How much damage do they inflict? And there's two ways to affect damage. One, the amount of damage any attack does. And two, the number of attacks they get. Good question on which ones should you be tweaking first or last. There isn't really a sequence of them. It's more about what effect you want to have on the battle. If you have a lot of characters and you feel like those characters are all going to gang up on a smaller group of monsters, that's a good reason to have more monsters. Now, one big one with the more monsters is the length of the battle is going to go significantly longer for the more monsters you add. So adding monsters is a good way to spread out the action economy. Give the action economy balance back in favor of the monsters or, or better towards monsters. But spread it out a little bit but keep in mind that when you add more monsters the length of the battle is going to take longer so like this is one where you have six characters and you throw you know 10 monsters at them it's going to be a long fight and you need to be prepared in the pacing of your game to, to make it a long fight the hit point dial is a good dial to turn to speed up 
or slow down combat. If combat is really fun, sometimes you don't want it to end too quickly. You can turn the hit point dial, give monsters more hit points so they survive a little bit longer. It keeps the threat up higher and it keeps the battle from being over too quickly. Like if people are really enjoying the fight, you might not, you know, you want to use that. So that's a real good pacing dial. You can combine the first and the second. You can add more monsters, but dramatically reduce their hit points. They die faster, but there's more of them. So the action economy is up earlier in the battle. That's, that's not a bad way. So that, that hit point dial is length. That's sort of the length of combat dial. Many times, I would say probably nine times out of 10. You want to reduce the hit points, not increase them, because your goal is the battle has worn off. It's really that the characters have had their, you know, they've tipped over the point where they have are clearly in the advantage. And now it's time to move on to a new scene. Let them like destroy the remaining monsters easily by reducing the hit points, by making the next hit kill them and stuff like that. So reduction is usually more of a powerful tool than increasing. Increasing is not bad when... You have particular monsters that just, they're really powerful. They need to look powerful. They need to feel powerful. The challenge just isn't there. Otherwise, and you want to increase their hit points, you can certainly do that. But I bet you it's like one in five to, you know, one in five times that you would do that. The damage dials are a true increase in threat. And you can consider one sort of a small dial and one is a large dial. The small dial is changing the amount of damage that monsters do. By increasing the damage, maybe they add a little bit of fire damage. They do three extra points of fire damage because their blade is on fire when they attack. That's an easy one to kind of turn to just tune the damage a little bit. You just want guys to be a little bit harder. You can turn the, 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 the damage dial just a little bit. The number of attack style, that's a great big switch. Right. If you give monsters more attacks, they're going to be significantly greater in threat. So you want to be a little careful. But sometimes, particularly if a monster, if, again, the action economy wise, if the monster's actions are few, far fewer than the amount of character actions that are taking place, you can add attacks, give them more attacks, it's particularly attacks that attack multiple targets to give them a bigger threat. So those are two that manage the threat output. How much damage is going to the players, to, to, not the players, to the characters. And then one's a small dial, and that's the amount of damage that each attack does. And then the bigger dial is how many attacks they get. So those are all dials that you can use, but it's not so much a sequence of events. It's what effect do you want it to have in the actual game itself? Do you want to speed up combat? Do you want to slow down combat? Do you want to increase the threat? Do you want to decrease the threat? You know, do you want to balance the action economy? Those are all the different ways that you would use those different things. Great question. Thank you for that. Bobby DM says, I'd love to hear your thoughts about Albert Rodeo 2.0. I really like it. I will be in being directly honest when it when the when the prototype of Albert Rodeo first came out. Albert Rodeo is a very lightweight virtual tabletop browser based tabletop. There are free versions of it available. They now have paid versions that you can subscribe to. I am paying for a version of it because I want to keep consistency of it. I love Albert Rodeo to death. You've seen other videos I've shot where I've looked at Albert 1.0 as a very lightweight virtual tabletop, very easy to use. It does not have any rules integrated into it. And instead, it's just really meant to be an easy way to get a map and some tokens on it so that you can play online. It was a lifesaver for me when I was running games during COVID, when I ran lots of virtual games, and now I use it regularly. As a guy who likes to use lots of different kinds of combat, from theater of the mind combat all the way up to really fancy Dwarven Forge combat, Albert Rodeo fits in a lot of those categories. It's, it's, I find it so fast and easy to use that I can grab a map and, and put it on the, the, the tabletop and put tokens on it and put it in front of the character, put it in front of the players during a game. And that to me is a really, that, that, that speed is so 
handy when it's like, oh, I didn't realize I was going to need a map, but now I do. I can drop a map in there fast enough. You a couple minutes. I, I, I have a video where I was able to take all of Castle Ravenloft and put it into Albert Rodeo 1-0 in like five minutes. All of them, all every level of Castle Ravenloft in Albert Rodeo in five minutes. And and when Albert 2.0 came out, they definitely added more features. And it's always tricky when you add new features to keep it as simple as it was. And it isn't as simple as it was, but it got better that, that from the time when the original beta versions of Alba R- Rodeo 2.0 came out to now, it is now faster to, to add a map. And I'll, I'll do, a quick, I'll do a, a quick little demonstration. So this is Alba Rodeo 2.0. You can get to it by going to albert.app, link in the show notes, of course. And the one big difference is that now it has a persistent state. So before all of the assets were loaded on your computer and your browser, which meant if you switch browsers, or you switch machines, you couldn't get access to it. It had to be on your local. The new one are served server side, which means that's one of the reasons why they have a paid tier is because you're paying for the storage to be able to store your stuff there. So you have your, you have your profile and you have different rooms that you, that you have. And so we're going to take a look. This is a spoiler for Scarlet Citadel. We'll take a look at my Scarlet Citadel room. And in the Scarlet Citadel room, I now have, let's take a look. So here is the example of where the characters are now. And they move the tokens over to the bottom. They move some things around and it's like, ah, it's a pain. Now I got to learn it again. And you do have to learn it again. The thing that makes Albert too you more usable to me is one that the persistence is really nice the idea that the maps are there and they're always there and i never have to worry about them not being there i don't have to worry about which browser i was using or anything like that that's really handy but also they added some things like initiative like now you can track initiative inside the application so if you see this little combat there's this little initiative marker this is an optional plugin but it's by default and i can go in and i can select my characters with my little selection tool and then i can hit this and say add to initiative and it puts their initiative in there doesn't have the whole dnd beyond integrated initiative i still have to ask the players to tell me what their score is but i can then type in their scores right in here and move them into initiative order with whatever i want if i had a monster token i could also add that monster token in so like let's say all of a sudden they're facing old shuck so i can then add old shuck i can select old shuck and i can add him to initiative and bang there he is and old shuck has a 22 he gets to go faster than all of them Right. So real easy, real easy to use. Adding a new map is a, a, a there's a more, more steps than there was before. But now because you're kind of building your campaign out in it, that one, I think it's like one extra added step to, to, to drop a map in. There's definitely things you have to figure out. I'll probably do a more a, a deeper video where I talk about how to use it when when it fully comes out, when it's out of beta. I'm, I'm, they're still changing stuff fast enough and they change stuff fast enough anyway that when I shoot a video about it, it's like, oh, they don't do it that way anymore. So the short answer to your question is I like it now and I like it more than I did when, it, when, when Albert 2.0 first came out because they've definitely been working on streamlining the process to get to play. It's clearly important to the developers and it works really well. So yes, I very much like Albert Rodeo 2.0. It's free to try. If you want to try it out, Link in the show notes below. Rich G says, I subscribe to the idea of calling for ability checks only when failure is interesting. Otherwise, success is automatic or I deliver the desired information. Makes sense. My players, however, want to make history and arcana checks all the time. How can I make failure interesting with these checks? Could I give misinformation or rumors? But since the players want to make the roll, they, they'll see through those. I could roll for them, but I have yet to meet a group that likes secret DM rolls. It could provide fronts of information to imply that certain NPC might know more, but that won't be interesting for long. Any ideas? Yes. So you can Think of them, the, the ability checks as having a floor. 
And similar to like the way passive checks kind of have a floor, that there's a minimum amount of information they'll just be able to know. And then you can have this idea of critical information they'll always know, but they may know stuff on top of that. So if they roll high, they might learn a little bit more. I've also had it that if they roll high, it carries over, that they learn other information they might not have learned later, even though they made their check earlier. I'm like, look, you rolled a 22 and we're going to hang on to that 22 and it's going to carry forward to other scenes. So you can you can definitely do tricks like that, like, like let high rolls you know, do more stuff. And then the low roll doesn't really matter. They, they, have a, they have a minimum amount of information. I agree with you about misinformation. I'm not a big fan of offering misinformation. I might, as a joke, do it sometimes. One of the fun things, though, is I actually kind of like it when players roll low and the player knows they, load, they, load, they rolled low but the character doesn't. And I will tell them, oh no, you think this room is perfectly safe, right? They're like, I rolled a three on my perception check. And like, yeah, the room's totally safe. You can't even imagine anybody would ever trap anything in this room. And that's just kind of a funny thing. It's just funny, right? It's, that, it's, it's a gag and the player like looks at you and you just smile at the player and like they still don't know if there's traps or not, right? And then you can be like, oh, a trap, right? So, you know, my games are not so serious that I'm not willing to, to, to like do that sort of meta, the meta story, it's almost like action comedy movies where like, you know, like it's just, it's, it's funny how something happened. Right. And, 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 it, and you're in on the gag, right. That, that, the, 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 you're breaking the fourth wall a little bit. That's okay. Break the fourth wall. So, so that's one way as, as like, let them roll. I, I'm, I don't mind doing the secret rolls and maybe players are really upset by this. And maybe it's something worth talking about in a session zero. But I certainly think that there are occasions where you would want to just ask them for their score. What's your perception bonus? And then you roll a die in and then and then explain what they see. And they don't know if they rolled well or not. I think there's a I think there's room for that. And I think explaining to the player that there are times where I want to make sure that you as a player have basically the same perception as the character has. And that wouldn't be the case if you knew that the die rolled low. So I think that that's, I think secret DM roles are okay. It's one of the tools. I have an article called Our Abilities Check Toolbox, which talks about all sorts of different ways that you can use ability checks, group checks, individual checks, hidden checks, open checks, checks with floors, all different kinds of ways that you can, ability checks. It is a big, long article. It's got lots of, lots of conversation in here about it. I will link to this article in the show notes below, but I think that that is, that is one way to think about it. Think about the fact that this is a an easy you know a big bunch of different ways that you can use ability checks to for different things in your games so rich i hope that answers your question Sasquatch says, if you were to run, I think it's Sasquatch. That looks like Sasquatch. If you were to run a mid-campaign check-in, what are some questions that you would ask? It's a good that's a good question. They're all good questions. All of these are good questions cuz I hand selected them. So of course they're good questions. Past Mike Shea, thank you for this really good question, for selecting this question. Sasquatch, thank you for asking this good question. You can run it a lot like a session zero. You can just sort of re-baseline the game, right? And you can do it out of character. You can kind of break out of character. Say, I'd just like to spend a half hour talking about the game. Are you enjoying it? What are the things you really like about the game? What are th some things that you're looking forward to, both from the progression of the story of the campaign, but also the progression of your own character? How do you feel about the system we're using? How do you feel about the options that we've got? What's your general feeling? I wish I had done this more for my Numenera game. I'm going to endure to persevere to do this for both of my current existing games, which have now been going on a few months. Now's a really good time for a mid-game, a mid-game check-in. And, and you can do things like reinforce, but if people have been having a little bit of trouble with, with lines and veils or the X card or anything, it's a good opportunity to just reiterate safety tools. Hey, please keep these safety tools in mind, 
right? We want to make our game as fun as possible for everybody at the, at, at the game. So you can you go through the session zero checklist again. I think the two big areas you want to do are go through the session zero checklist and, and look at all the different session zero stuff. There's a link about session zero in the show notes, but now everybody's talking about session zero. So you can find lots of good stuff. It's not bad. And then see which of those do you think makes sense for a mid-game check-in. You can throw the ones, throw the parts away that you don't think make sense for a mid-game check-in. Think about the ones that do. Pretend you're bringing in a brand new character. How would you, a brand new player, how would you, how would you do that? Then the other part is to think about your stars and wishes. What are the things that people are enjoying about the game? And you can get a little bit more detail. Instead, star, stars and wishes are basically what are the parts of the game that you really enjoy? And what are the things you're really looking forward to? The stars and the wishes. The stars are what are the things you really enjoy? Wishes are things you want to do. And, but you can expand on that by both saying, how do you feel about it as a player in general? How do you feel about it in particular to your character? What are the things in general you're looking forward to in the story? What are the things specific to your character that you are considering? I think those are really good questions to ask. So I would mix all of that together. I would also maybe ask the character. So you could say, what is your character looking forward to doing? What's the motivation of your character in this now? And re-baseline the goal. Like, Recall that your goal is to save the crossroads from the the undead tyranny of the empire of the ghoul the, the ghoul imperium, right? That you can clarify that. I think I think that's that's really good to do. Doug P says point crawl question. Do you graphically present slash show your point crawl map to players? Why or why not? It depends. If you're not familiar with point crawls, there's a lot of really good articles about them. Justin Alexander over at the Alexandrian wrote a lot about point crawls. That's where I learned about it. You can also find a link to articles that I've written about point crawls down in the show notes below. A point crawl is essentially a way of treating overland travel like you're going through a dungeon. Instead of rooms and hallways, you have locations and paths that connect those locations. Here's a kind of relatively rudimentary and probably a little bit too uniform example of a point crawl where there's different directions that the characters can go different places they can go different paths they can take to go there and the question is do you show this to the players i think what you can do is you can show part of it to your players you want to show them the things that the characters would know the characters could be familiar with the paths that they could take i think you want to show them enough to give them meaningful choices that they can make and you can either hand draw this you can you can whip it up in a tool i was using a program called graphviz to render these is very pretty straightforward tool that can generate a nice point crawl map. I've used it before. There are other ones out there. I think there's mermaid mermaid charts, I think they're called, mermaid graphs, where you can do sort of nodes and edges and you can design point crawl maps for them. I think you want to offer enough so that the players can make meaningful choices about the paths they're going to take and then hide some of the secret stuff. The nice thing about making a point crawl is you can have secret paths to secret locations. You could have paths that, that go back and you can draw those. I think it's useful to pass those maps to the players so that they feel like they have a connection. Here's an example of a big point crawl map. This was a city point crawl map that I used in my Eberron game. And you can see like there's secret paths here. Like there's a secret path between the runoff and the gates of making. They could learn about that later. They might find that path later. They could, you know, they, when they hit the silver flame spire, they might find out that there's an old tunnel, but they might not find out about, they might not know about that right away. If they hear somebody talk about it at the impaled, oh, there's a secret old tunnel at the silver flame spire, then you might add it to your map. So I think it's actually handy. If you're going to do like a graphical display, have one version that is viewable to the players, have another version that's 
for you. And ideally set it up so that you can remove paths from yours and then and then give it to the player so they can see it. But I think the answer to your question is you, you often want to show your point crawl map to the players because you want them to be able to make meaningful choices. The point crawl map for them should be something that's useful for them to make choices about where they're going because that's the whole reason you're doing a point crawl is that you want them to have meaning. And, you, know, you can just tell them what direction to go if you don't want them to have any choices. So, so I would say mostly reveal it, but you can, of course, keep secret parts back. Dr. Fugue says, I've been playing around with chat GDP, the new chat bot in town. I would love to hear what you, what you think, trying to prep a session by giving prompts for plots, NPCs, encounters, and see what you think. And if this might be the, f the future of super lazy DM to prep a session or even use as an improv tool in sessions. Yeah, so in the SciFlourish Discord server, and I think earlier on, on one of the previous episodes of the show, I talked about ChatGDP. I actually think that, that programs like Midsummer that can generate images are probably more valuable than ChatGDP is, at least right now, for prep, because I can use random tables to come up with a lot of good inspiration for my adventures. And the fact that the natural language processing of ChatGDP makes them read really well, I don't really need it to read very well because I, I, I can say that stuff. I, I need the ideas. I think it's harder for somebody to come up with good images. Midjourney's ability to come up with interesting images is a really powerful tool for like NPCs or locations or other things like that that they might not see. I think that mid I think that Midjourney offers us something that we really couldn't do previously. Like a lot of times you can go and hit Google and find images and that's something. But it's something different when you have a really particular thing. So this is an example where like I, as, a, as a lark, one in my, in my Empire of the Ghouls game, they have left a, a rat folk guy, in not in charge of, but they, there's like a rat folk guy who's a paralegal to one of the characters who thinks that they're a lawyer. I thought it would be funny that while the characters are off doing their adventures in the far north, I thought, meanwhile, I, did, I wanted to do like a meanwhile back at your bar in Zobek. And I wanted to have a picture of a rat folk in a business suit you know, like writing stuff down in a bar and, and so they could have it. And so I whipped it up in mid in, in mid journey. And this is what I got. And what I, what I, <laughs> what I love is it's a really funny image. And, and I put it there and it did the effect, which is, oh man, we don't know what's going back in our bar. We're going to go back there and who knows what's going on. Right. But look how many fingers he has on his right hand. That's like, he's got like 22 fingers. It's really creepy. Right. And so it doesn't really work, but it's good enough. Right. And, and I think when we think about AI, this AI stuff. When we think about chat GPT and we think about mid journey, good enough is really what we're aiming for. And boy, when it comes to lazy DM good enough is what we want. If you are finding chat GPT to be a really valuable aid for you to get material for your game, great. Go with the gods. Like it's, you know, anything that we can do to make our games easier is great. I find that just general random tables are, are suiting me just fine when it comes to kind of text-based stuff. I'm fascinated by chat GPT. I've spent some time with it. And, and they're scary in a lot of other ones. I am not going to get into the topic of commercialization of the material because that is a whole different topic. And the idea of being able to generate images and then sell those images, that's, that's a, an issue. But, you know, and it's a whole big topic that's bigger than this show. But when it comes to like finding things that make it easier for us to run our games, it's already kind of falling under a fair use category anyway. I don't think anybody's going to mind if the generation programs that use their stuff to generate images for our games, you know, I'm at least right now, I, I'm willing to change my opinion about it being a good or a bad thing. But right now it feels like, well, it's making our games easier. So why shouldn't we use it and give it a, give it a shot? But I know that there's definitely topics about it. Something we've talked about in the, we've definitely talked about in the SlyFlourish Discord server from time to time. So, so Dr. Few, yes, I think jet, chat GPT can be really cool. I've, I, I didn't find it to be 
really great for helping me prep my game, but I, I haven't tried too hard. And instead, I use random tables and all sorts of other things. I'd rather use random tables that are generated by actual human beings to help me shake up shake up my brain and come up with really with really good ideas. But I think that Mid Journey is a cool way to add art to our 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 games that we otherwise wouldn't be able to get from anywhere else. Specific art that we just can't we can't answer for. Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today. If you enjoyed this show, I suggest subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You will get a weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox that includes links for all of the stuff that I produce, and you'll get a free Adventure Generator PDF. It's all for free, and you can sign up. There's a link in the show notes below. You can also support me directly on Patreon. My Patreon is, is low price, but high value. You get a lot of material, the City of Arches sourcebook, exclusive adventures, tips, tricks, video previews, access to the Discord server, access to the a monthly Q&A, all kinds of great stuff for being a patron of Sly Flourish, and they help me put on shows like this. And you can pick up any of my books at the Sly Flourish bookstore, including The Lazy DM's Companion, The Lazy DM Workbook, and Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master in beautiful print copies. You can find links for all of that in the show notes below. Thank you all very much. Have a great day, and get out there and play some D&D.